hello and welcome to the second Sagas of She After Dark podcast. I'm Gemma. And I'm Emily. This time we're going to be looking at all things cursed. It seems that since the dawn of human history, curses have been used to create fear. From books in Mesopotamia, ancient Greek cursing tablets, to medieval manuscripts, even to pop culture curses still popular today. The items that have been cursed know no bounds. So when we talk about curses, the idea of witchcraft is never too far away. The witch hunts of the 17th century were a testimony to the fear of both witchcraft and curses. And if you've been keeping up to date with our historic housewife posts, you'll have seen some of the ways people believe that they could protect themselves from witches. And witches are coincidentally our first link to cursed objects. It's been said that after the death of a witch, her grimoire should be burnt. And if this was not done, it would become cursed. So cursed books are the first thing that I looked at. Have you got a couple of examples of cursed books? I have. And the first one is the Codex Gygus, or the Devil's Bible. It's a 13th century manuscript and weighs £165, and it requires two fully grown adults to lift it. The entire thing is written in Latin and consists of 620 pages or 310 parchment leaves. The pages of the Devil's Bible are made of vellum from the processed skins of 160 animals and people have said it's most probably donkey's skin that they've used. And some of the pages are thought to have been removed but no one knows what's actually happened to them. The legend behind the book states that the monk who wrote it broke his sacred vows and was waiting for his fellow monks to bury him alive behind a wall as punishment. But before he died, he wanted to create a book that contained all human knowledge. Knowing that he didn't have time for this, he called upon Lucifer, selling his soul in exchange for allowing him to finish his work. The name The Devil's Bible comes from the illustration of the devil on page 290 and it's believed to be the only Bible of his era that depicts Satan. The devil is shown alone in an empty landscape, crouching with his arms held up, and he wears an ermine loincloth. Now, ermine is usually associated with royalty, and it's used in this image to emphasise the position of the devil as the prince of darkness. And it's believed that the portrait was intended to remind the viewer of sin and evil, as its opposite page was a representation of the heavenly city, and the two pages together show the advantages of a good life and the disadvantages of a bad one. I'm all for big books, but why is that one so big? So the book contains a complete Old Testament and New Testament, as well as a collection of secular works. On pages that follow the picture of the devil, there's detailed instructions for the exorcism of demons or evil from people and objects. So... Is that the only cursed book you looked at? No, so the second one that I looked at was quite interesting. It was, it's called The Great Omar, and it's one of the many editions of the 12th century. I'm really sorry if I butcher this. It's the Rubiat of Omar Cayman, and the poems of Omar Cayman were immediately recognised as a dangerous and thrilling counsel of temptation and his works were condemned by religious authorities, and it's said that he was somewhat of a Leonardo da Vinci in his time, contributing to philosophy, theology, music, and mathematics. But he's most notable for his poetry. In 1912, Francis Sangorski of the Sangorski and Sutcliffe bookbinding firm decided to create his own version of the Rubiat. The company was well known for its extravagant creations, and money was no object in this project. 
took two and a half thousand hours to create one and a half thousand precious and semi-precious stones including emeralds rubies and amethysts four thousand nine hundred and sixty seven leather inlays six hundred sheets of twenty two carat gold leaf and at the turn of the 20th century bookbinding was an art and books were commissioned by bookbinders creating masterpieces which could take months or even years to create so when Sangorski finished his work he was devastated to find out that the book wasn't easy to sell he sent it on a boat to America to be put up for sale, but it was stopped at customs. He wanted to charge an astronomical fee for its entry into the country. So instead of paying it, he had it sent back to England and he eventually put it up for auction, but it only sold £450 to an American. So once again, the book would find itself on a boat heading to America, but it never made it there. The boat chosen to deliver the book was none other than the Titanic. And it's presumed that the book still sits at the bottom of the Atlantic to this day. Now, this is where we get a bit more cursed. So, only a few weeks later, Sangorski drowned and the circumstances surrounding his death aren't well documented, with some saying that it was more than a coincidence that he suffered the same fate as his masterpiece. His partner Sutcliffe worked with his nephew Stanley Bray to create a second Great Omar, and of course they named it the Great Omar II. This one was placed in a bank vault in the British bank, but in the Second World War, the bank was hit during the Blitz and all that was left was a pile of jewels. A third incarnation of the book was eventually created. Bray donated it to the British Library after his death and so far nothing's happened to it. I mean, a book covered in jewels cannot be fun to hold. Like, it's not practical. No. I feel like it's that kind of coffee table book that no one ever reads is just there to look nice. You wouldn't want to stub your toe on it. Oh, God, no. <laughs> you wouldn't be using that book to get rid of a spider. No. It's interesting that books are cursed, because you kind of tend to think of like books as being quite holy. Yeah. In Mesopotamia, they kind of have the very first curses that you see written down, and they put the curses inside their books, and a lot of medieval manuscripts did it too, to try and stop them from being stolen. Do you think that works? Because I hate it when people take my books. I don't know. I think it's more of a deterrent. I don't know if it would stop me. <laughs> Not that I go around stealing books, but you know what I mean? Yeah, but I guess if you are living at a time when curses are, you know, an everyday part of life, I think you'd probably think twice. I mean, I don't know. We're living through 2020. I'll believe in curses at this point. True. Very true. An archaeologist somewhere has opened the wrong tomb. Just wait, in like a few years' time... That'll be like a best-selling film. 2020. I don't know. I'd want, I don't know. Would, would you go and see it? Because there's going to be a lot of people just sitting around in their house during lockdown. I feel like there'll be someone like running around, some action, you know, some Hollywood license to it. Who do you see in the lead? Henry Cavill. I knew that was going to be your answer. <laughs> I knew it. And I'm guessing Hugh Jackman's in there somewhere as well. Yeah, definitely. Just as Wolverine, just like brief cameo. Yeah. Why not? I knew it was going to be Henry Cavill. I don't know why he even asked. Anyway, so cursed books. So the Devil's Bible, because mm. it had the Old and New Testament, as it was it a, a bad book or was it just kind of he wanted everything in it? He wanted all human knowledge at the time. So to them, I guess that's Old Testament, New Testament. It's got ways of getting you know exorcisms as well can they tell if it was written by one person 
they have looked and they think that from the ink and the Hunrai ink style that it was written by one monk and there's a monk named in the index of the book and they think it was him but they don't think it was written in a single night they think it was done over a very long time yeah because even like students who leave their essays to the last minute that would be impressive yeah and i the the only reason that the book is called the devil's bible is because of that illustration otherwise it's just the big book i like it the big book of everything well, so I love how in the second book you looked at, it was like, they called it the Omar 2. <laughs> yeah. So much thought went into that. So, is it just books that are cursed? No. So, after looking at books, I went to what is possibly the most well-known curse. And that's the Pharaoh's curse or Tutankhamun's curse. So, for those who don't know, in November of 1922, in the Valley of the Kings, across the Nile from Luxor, in Egypt... British archaeologist Howard Carter and his team discovered the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Now, Tutankhamun reigned in what we know today as the New Kingdom, and he died in 1323 BCE, aged about 18. And both his tomb and his death have been the source of historical mystery since his discovery. The tomb of Tutankhamun was the first to be found almost entirely undisturbed, and the discovery was to make headlines. Carter was just one of many British archaeologists working in Egypt in the 1920s. He went out as a 19-year-old artist working on, others, on other people's archaeological excavations until he gained funding for his own excavations. Interestingly, the archaeological season was set to coincide with the tourist season, beginning in November and ending between March and April. And Thomas Cook were even offering package holidays to Egypt. By matching the seasons, tourists could meet with one another, as well as archaeologists working on various sites in a 1920s version of the Grand Tour. These meetings were important as British archaeology at the time was funded by a mixture of public subscription and private investors. In the case of public subscription, the archaeologists were required to keep the public up to date with their latest finds and make their sites visible in the press. So a find like Tutankhamun was especially important for Carter as he was being funded by Lord Carnarvon. So in November 1922, Carter's team discovered a staircase, which was their first indication of a possible tomb. Following the staircase, they found a sealed compartment, and on the 26th of November, Carter recorded in his diary how they'd reached the top left-hand corner of the doorway and peered into the tomb by candlelight while they waited for an electric torch to see better. Once the tomb was lit, they saw an antechamber that contained at least 700 objects and it would take the team three months to get to the burial chamber itself. So how soon after this did the curse begin? The story of the curse didn't spread immediately as it was months after the discovery that the news that Lord Carnarvon had died started to spread. He was bitten by a mosquito and the bite became infected and he died in Cairo in April of 1923, aged 56. Reports said that the lights in the city went out at the time of his death, which set off a frenzy of speculation. And Arthur Conan Doyle told the American press that an evil elemental spirit created by priests to protect the mummy could have caused Carnarvon's death. Other alleged victims of the curse included Prince Ali Kamal Fameh Bey of Egypt, who was shot dead by his wife in 1923, Arthur Mace of Carter's excavation team, 
who is said to have died of arsenic poisoning in 1928. Carter's secretary, Richard Bethel, who died after supposedly being smothered in his bed in 1929. And Sir Bruce Ingham, a friend of Howard Carter, who accepted the gift of a paperweight made from a mummified hand and then his house burnt down. Now, these are just a few names and more of the people that were supposedly affected by the curse will be in our resource and research tone for our lovely patrons. That sounds like a lot of murder. So is there any truth to the curse? So the building of a tomb was a massive investment of time, wealth and effort for those who could afford it, putting their afterlife plans into action as soon as they could. The ancient Egyptians saw the afterlife as a chance to live again in a place called the Field of Reeds, which was said to be a paradise styled on Egypt itself. They saw the individual as a number of parts. Their life force, known as the car, would reside in the tomb after death and needed to receive offerings to survive. Another part of the person was the bar, which was represented as a human-headed bird and was thought to fly about during the day, but also needed to return to the tomb for the night. And the modern day ideas of a cursed tomb reflects the amount of effort that they put into the preparation for death, with many tombs and temples regularly being inscribed with curses at their entrance, with those examples that survive genuinely following the same structure of if you do something negative in or to the tomb, you'll be punished. Perhaps less of a curse and more of a no trespassing sign. And one example from a tomb in Pinnet at Anmir warns that any negative behaviour will result in an individual being miserable. The idea of mummies had been popular long before the curse stories began, with some even blaming the sinking of the Titanic on a mummy. It's highly unlikely that there was really a curse on the tomb, as the media was quick to link any misfortune that happened to someone involved in the excavation to the curse. If there was a curse, surely Howard Carr would have suffered a terrible death much sooner than 1939. In recent years, some have suggested that the pharaoh's curse was something biological in nature rather than supernatural, but most scientists agree that isn't the case either. Burial curses don't just stay with the Egyptians, do they? No, I was shocked to find out that Stalin was said to have been hit by Timur's curse from the disruption of a burial during the Second World War. So Timur or Tamerlane, or Timur the Lame, a name that came from the Persians as an insult, is known as one of history's most feared conquerors and the founder of the Timurid Empire. He was born in 1336 and before becoming a conqueror in his own right, he was known to have fought with the son of Genghis Khan, Shigati. In his final days, he was set to conquer China's Ming Empire, but his campaign came to an abrupt halt due to a severe winter, and in 1405, Tamerlane died from influenza in Otar, Kazakhstan, aged 69, after some 35 years of constant campaigning. The resting place of this conqueror is Gurimir, and his gravestone reads, When I rise from the dead, the world shall tremble. Whosoever disturbs my tomb will unleash an invader more terrible than I am. In June 1941, a group of scientists led by anthropologist Mikhail Gerasimov began to excavate Tamerlane's mausoleum. There was panic from the locals. They feared that war would begin three days after the tomb was opened, as had been prophesied in several Islamic texts. They tried to warn the cameramen that had gone with the team, but to no avail. 
the expedition had been commissioned by Joseph Stalin himself. It was impossible for them to do anything other than proceed. On the 18th of June, the team opened the tomb of Ulug Beg, the grandson of Tamir, and, and a famous astrologer. The following day, the team looked to Tamir's tomb. They removed the cover stone of the grave and discovered that it was broken. The damage corresponded with the 17th century legend that said the Persian king Nader Shah, who had idolized Tamir, took the gravestone as a trophy. But following this, he experienced great misfortune and in an attempt to reverse the ill effect, he attempted to return the gravestone, but it was broken accidentally on its way back to the gravesite. On the 20th of June, the coffin was opened and the skeleton of Tamir was uncovered. On the 22nd of June, 1941, just three days after the gravestone was removed, Nazi Germany attacked Russia. It was later learned that in November of 1942, Stalin had ordered the remains of Tamir to be returned to Samarkand and reburied with the full honour according to Islamic tradition. I'm really sorry if I've butchered those names. I'm really sorry. I have never heard of the curse of Tamir. No, I hadn't. So I was really surprised. I didn't realise that Stalin was looking for something at that point either. I guess it kind of makes sense because Hitler was looking for the Spear of Destiny, as yeah. I'll talk about a bit more next week. You kind of tend to forget that the occult aspect to World War Two was real and not just a Hollywood... Yeah, you kind of feel like it's just been left to Indiana Jones a little bit. Indiana Jones is a terrible archaeologist. He destroys every temple he goes into. I know. Yells about things belonging in a museum. But they don't. They belong where they were. Give things back, looking at you, British Museum. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Like, how little we know, like, how little that one's talked about, con considering how much we all talk about the curses in Egypt and things. I guess yeah. mummies capture the imagination more. They were capturing the imagination, like, even from the medieval period. People were, you know, stocking up with powdered mummy in their pharmacies and using them in remedies. So <clears throat> amazing timing, though. They opened the grave and three days later, here come the Germans. Or yeah. Here come the Nazis, I should say. Which would explain why he, why Stalin had him reburied. I mean, I'm not surprised. I bet that was an, a crap moment. Mm -hmm. So they say diamonds are a girl's best friend, but I've heard that some can be more of a nightmare. Is there any proof of that? Yes. Uh, the first example is the curse of the hope diamond so it's a blue diamond around the size of a walnut and weighs 45 carats and was said to be worth an estimated quarter of a billion dollars now it's said to have been stolen from an idol in an indian temple by a hindu priest whose actions didn't go unpunished and he was subjected to a slow and agonizing death nice and cheerful now the the diamond made its way to Europe in 1642 and when it was bought by a French merchant who was said to have died after being mauled by a pack of wild dogs after he sold it to King Louis Fourteenth, The diamond remained with the French royal family until 1792 when it was stolen during the French Revolution and the beheading of the French royals is often attributed to the curse. The diamond disappeared for a few decades and it was recut into a smaller diamond, and some even speculated that George the Fourth of England had it but sold it when he was forced to sell his estates to pay for his gambling debts. Now, for those who don't know, George the Fourth became the regent when his father, George the Third, was said to be mad 
and his gambling and marriage difficulties meant that he never re regained much popularity and he spent his final years in seclusion at Windsor, dying at the age of 67 in 1830. In 1839, Henry Thomas Hope acquired the diamond and this is how it got its name. Following Hope's death, the diamond passed through several owners who suffered poor fates, suicide, murders and bad investments, leaving them penniless. Those who came into contact with it suffered failed marriages, deaths of children, drug addiction and insanity, which led to media sensationalism. Evelyn Walsh McLean was an heiress and socialite, and she bought the diamond in 1910 for the equivalent of $4.6 million today. She lived with her husband in Washington, D.C. and began to wear the diamond once again out in public. And she even let her dog roam around the house wearing it on its collar. Shortly after Evelyn purchased the diamond, her mother-in-law died. And then her nine-year-old son died. Her husband left her for another woman before dying in a sanatorium shortly after. And their daughter lost her life to drugs at the age of 25. After all the loss... Evelyn sold the family newspaper, the Washington Post, and when she died, she left her family in debt. It was said that the only way to avoid the curse was to be pure of heart, and the curse was said to have ended when Harry Winston donated it to the Smithsonian in 1958. But, while the curse seemed to have been broken by its donation, the diamond was to have another victim. James Todd was the postal worker who delivered the diamond to the Smithsonian Institute in 1958 and soon after he suffered a truck accident and his home was destroyed by fire. Now fun fact and another Titanic related one, the Titanic's heart of the ocean necklace is based on the Hope Diamond. In the film it was said to have belonged to Louis XIV, no Louis XVI. Real-life surviving passenger Kate Florence Phillips possessed a diamond necklace, as well as a sapphire from her lover Henry Samuel Morley, and they boarded the Titanic as second-class passengers, which is where the necklace idea came from. I don't think that fact is as fun as you think it is. It is, it's fun. Did they survive? Uh, she did. I don't know if he did. It's a fun, it's a fun pop culture fact. Is that the only stone that's trouble? No, there's quite a few, unfortunately. The Black Orlov is also known as the Eye, of the Eye of Brahma Diamond. And while today it weighs 67.5 carats, it was once part of a larger 195 carat diamond. And its history can be traced back to 19th century India. Legend says that the 195 carat diamond was one of the eyes in a statue of Brahma, the Hindu god of creation, within a shrine in the city of Pondicherry, southern India. The diamond was said to have been stolen by a travelling monk who was cursed as punishment, and where the diamond went, so too did the curse. In 1932, the diamond found its way to America, imported by a European diamond dealer, Mr J.W. Paris. Little's known about him, but within a week of arriving in New York, he sold the diamond on an and on April 7th, 1932, he made his way up a Manhattan skyscraper and jumped to his death. Before the diamond found its way into the hands of Mr. Paris, it belonged to a Russian princess named Nadia Virgin Orlov, the source of the name, and she was living in Rome, having fled Russia during the 1917 revolution. But on December the 2nd, 1947, 15 years after Mr. Paris's death, she too jumped to her death in central Rome. 
A month prior to the death of Nadia, another Russian princess, Leonia Petrovna Baratininsky, had leapt to her death and it was discovered later that she too had once owned the diamond. In the 1950s, an attempt was made to break the curse by recutting it from the 195 carats to 67.5. An Australian jeweller did this at the request of the newest owner, Charles F. Wilson. The diamond since passed through several private dealers, none of whom have been hit by a curse. And the diamond now sits in a 108 diamond brooch and was even worn to the 2006 Oscars by Felicity Huffman. But in 2019, she was served with 14 days prison time, 250 hours of community service and a fine of $30,000 for her involvement in a college admission, admissions scandal. Wow. I mean, that's insane. Like, all those people jumping to their death. Yeah. When I was reading about it, I can't remember which princess it is, but there's some speculation that one of them might not have existed because they can't find any records of her. But then I guess she could have also possibly changed her name when they escaped Russia. So you just don't Yeah, I guess you wouldn't want a Russian name, maybe. No. But I, I've heard of the Hope Diamond. I hadn't heard of the second one. The Black Orb. Um, yeah. I hadn't heard of that one. There's also another one that is a regular diamond that also has the name. And that has um, Bad Luck for Love attached to it as well but I didn't really look into that one. I've also looked at the purple Delhi sapphire and the Koh Noor diamond and those will be in the research and resource term. It's amazing how much a, a gem can do because as I'll be looking at a bit more next week there's some that bring good luck. Yeah mine I think the reason that they have bad luck is because they're all stolen. Yeah that's never a good start. No. So I think they're cursed I, because they're stolen from holy places. Also, the diamond trade is terrible anyway, isn't it? Like, even... Yeah. Like, it's founded on, like, worse than slave labour conditions, and maybe they're not so much best friends anymore. So, is it a bird, is it a plane, or is it the Superman curse? So when I think of pop culture curses, my brain went straight to the Superman curse. Today, DC's Superman is a well-known superhero, with the most recent actor to portray Henry Cavill becoming popular in the Netflix adaptation of The Witcher. However, portraying the Man of Steel is said to come with a curse. Some have argued that the original curse struck the hero's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, as they sold the rights to the character for a mere $130 to National Allied Publications, the precursor company to DC Comics, before spending the rest of their lives trying to recover legal ownership of the gold mine that was Superman. While others have argued that the curse manifested because of the injustice felt by, this, felt by Superman's creators, whatever the case, the curse has struck many actors over the years. Who are some of the people that have been harmed by this curse? So probably the most well-known is Christopher Reeve, who landed his iconic film role in 1978 Superman and its three sequels. Side note, I love these films. On May the 27th, 1995, Reeve, who was an avid horseman, was competing in an equestrian event when he was thrown from his mount and suffered a broken neck. The accident left him a lifelong quadriplegic, dependent on a respirator, but he continued to act and became a vocal advocate for those suffering from paralysis. 
But despite having beaten the odds and even regaining some of feeling in his limbs, Reeve died from pneumonia, a complication of his condition, at the age of 52 in 2004. But he isn't the only Superman to have been seriously affected by the curse. George Reeves was the first television Superman, starring in both the 1951 film and the Adventures of Superman TV show that ran for six years, starting in 1952. Reeves had a hard time shaking his superhero image. Test audiences responded negatively to his appearance in the Second World War film, From Here to Eternity, because they struggled to picture Superman at war. And in 1958, after five successful seasons, Superman was cancelled and Reeves struggled to find work afterwards. On June 16, 1959, he was found dead in his bedroom during a party at his house. The cause, a gunshot wound to his head. Police ruled his death a suicide, but the testimonies of drunken guests and the inconclusiveness of the physical evidence led to murder rumours. He was just 45 years old, and his death remains one of Hollywood's most enduring mysteries, inspiring the 2006 film Hollywoodland. The youngest actor to have been hit by the curse was Lee John Quigley. He was cast as Superman at the tender age of seven months, appearing alongside Marlon Brando in the 1978 movie as his infant son, Kal-El. He was the youngest actor to have portrayed him and the first British actor, and in 1991, he died tragically due to complications from solvent abuse at just 14. So does it always end so badly? Sometimes it just starts as not being able to gain other roles. Kirk Allen was the first actor to portray Superman, starring in two 15-episode film series for Columbia Studios in 1948, Superman and Atom Man vs. Superman. But because he wasn't well known, the studio execs kept his name out of the credits as Superman. After playing the Man of Steel for three years, he wasn't able to shake his Superman image. And because audiences had trouble picturing him as other characters, he only scored small roles in B pictures. He even saw his camera role as Lois Lane's father cut from the 1978 film version. But in his final years, he struggled with Alzheimer's and he died in relative obscurity, so maybe it does end badly. But is it limited to just those who play Superman? No, it didn't only strike those who played the Man of Steel himself. The curse even targets those who star alongside him. Marlon Brando, who played Superman's father, Joram, endured family tragedy when his son was convicted for killing his daughter's fiancé, and his daughter committed suicide. Richard Pryor, who played a computer hacker in Superman 3, lit himself on fire during a drug range and later developed multiple sclerosis. And Margaret Kidder, who played the plucky Lois Lane, went on to suffer from bipolar disorder and addiction, causing havoc in her life and derailing her career. So are there any other pop culture curses? The 27 Club has become one of the most elusive and remarkably tragic coincidences in rock and roll history and it became more widely known following Kirk Payne's death in 1994 with rock fans connecting his age to that of Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix and when Amy Winehouse passed away at the age of 27 in 2011 the curse attracted even more media attention. While the club's been largely connected to musicians 
it's also expanded as many young actors and artists have lost their lives due to everything from addiction to suicide to freak accidents. And I'm honestly not sure if it's a curse or a terrible coincidence that people in the limelight are dying at an early age. The Superman curse is interesting. Like, I, I knew a bit about that one. Not that I'm a nerd or anything. It doesn't hit all of them. No. I mean, Dean Cain's done all right. I mean, he's a plonker, but he's done all right. Yeah. Actually, I mean, he hasn't really done much since Superman. Uh, yeah. Since Lois and Superman and Lois. What's that called? The Return of Superman. I, oh, I love that. Is it The Return of Superman or The Adventures of Superman? I can't remember. I love that TV show. Yeah. He, play, he plays Kara's stepdad. I know, but he's a Trump supporter and a bit oh. of a dick. Damn yeah. It. I know. He's always in Hallmark Christmas movies. But I, I can see that because I struggle to see... Daniel Radcliffe is anything but Harry Potter. Yeah. And the same with, um, like, Kerry Fisher, Mark Hamill. They're always Luke and Leia. Yeah. People, I think this is, it's not so much a curse as just people get typecast. Yeah. Especially when you play a character people get attached to. Yeah, definitely. Like, back then, comic book fans were hardcore. But more so now because they didn't have the abundance of stuff we have. Yeah. You, you know. So they had to kind of search it out and it was quite a small elite club of people. But Christopher Reeves was my first Superman. I remember kind of, like I was only 10 when he had his accent, so I don't really, really remember, but I, I kind of remember it being on the news a lot and that stuff. Yeah. But I love those movies. I am. Um... I'm not old enough to remember it. Oh, sorry. No. I think I just sprained my eyes. I rolled them so hard. <laughs> but I, I love the Superman films. I love them. I watched them and then I then watched the TV series. I remember watching um, the old Batman TV show with Adam West. Yes. Me too. And that was my first introduction to Batman. And then I watched the Superman films. I think my problem is I love the TV show of Batman so much that I can't watch anything else because I know Batman's meant to be dark, but all I see is when they're having fight seats and like bam and pow flash up on the screen instead of seeing any violence. That's what you see. I go through stages where I really like Batman and then I go through stages where I'm just like, oh, this is overdone now. I'm quite surprised there's not a Batman curse because Batman either does wonders for somebody's career or completely... There probably is. Trashed. Yeah, quite probably. I mean, a lot of movies have curses attached. Well, not curses so much, but um, bad luck and things attached. And like um, the Conjuring films, apparently people on that were getting scratched and stuff. So that's more of a haunting than a curse, I guess. Yeah. But it's interesting about the 27 Club. Yeah. I When I started looking into it, there's so many people. I mean, a lot of people I didn't know. Because um, it's like either not my type of music or I'm just not old enough to have, you know, 
come across them like it slowly started to open up to not just being musicians because um Chekhov from star star trek he he, he was 27 wasn't he I, I can't remember his real name which is terrible anton yelchin he was a one he was wonderful in star trek i loved him i was really sad i think i actually cried when i found out yeah, because it was like Father's Day as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was a car accident. It His was... car rolled back, didn't it? And crushed him. She's just awful. Yeah. I honestly thought Amy Winehouse was older than 27. Yeah, no. I think the limelight really is really difficult for people. And you have to have a really strong support system around you, and I just don't think she had that. I wonder if there's like a psychological thing, like that, you know, maybe at 27, that's kind of where you hit your, your defences are low and that's... I think when you're around like 25 to 30, I think you start seeing your friends are either pairing off, settling down, getting married. And I think at that point you kind of sit down, look at you like evaluate your life. And I think if you feel like you're missing out on something... Yeah. I guess it also depends at what age you came to fame as well. Yeah, because a lot of them, like Kurt Cobain was drugs as well, wasn't it? I think the thing is, like, we sometimes, especially nowadays, where everyone can just spew so much hate anonymously over the internet, we, we forget that celebrities are real people. Yeah. They have to shoulder a lot. I couldn't do it, deal with it. No. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't think I believe that's a curse. I think that's just a lot of really awful circumstances yeah you get a couple of them people just like kind of put them together as a coincidence and then yeah it's also kind of how conspiracy theories start like with celebrities in the illuminati and things like that yeah so out of all of these cursed objects you've looked at mm. which one would you be the most willing to take possession of not the jewelry <laughs> I just wouldn't want to risk it because they're just not nice curses. They're just really awful curses. I think I think probably the one that's not really cursed is the Devil's Bible. It's just that people say it's cursed. Because I haven't found anything bad happening to anyone that's looked at it. No. It's just that it was created through a curse of selling your song. You need a big bookcase, though. Yeah, it takes up like a big table if you find images of it online. It, I mean, it is a table. <laughs> yeah. It takes two people to pick it up, so it's heavy. What about you? See, the, 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 the part of me that knows I'd never actually have to do it kind of wants to go and... Uh, what, what's the second stone called? The Black Olaf. That's it. Yeah, just because I know I'd never actually have to do it. If somebody said to me, like, actually said to me, here you go, then we've popped it on a necklace, go wear it around town for a little while, I'd probably be like, no. Out of the two, you want the one that makes people jump off buildings? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> At least it's a good view. No, see, I'm scared of heights, so I'm really not having that one. I don't think I'd want to, like... One of the many reasons I avoided archaeology as a career is I'd be really worried about curses. 
Yeah, you kind of just have to hope for the best. <laughs> That's reassuring. I sometimes I think curses are just in your in your mind, and then people start, like you said earlier, start pulling coincidences together, and you suddenly have a curse. And I think with quite a lot of them, like Tutankhamun's curse, the media started taking any misfortune. It wasn't yeah. just death; it was any misfortune. And people were dying years later, and then they just because they had some connection to the tomb, it was the curse. I think if it was a curse, it would have happened a lot quicker. And a lot of those deaths were kind of sounded like more like murders than something supernatural to me. Yeah, and a lot of them just died of old age, like they were older. Also, you shouldn't put too much stock in what Arthur Conan Doyle said he was a writer after all he was always going to come up with something fanciful yeah and not long before that he'd actually written something that was to do with mummy's curses so it's kind of a publicity thing yeah it's interesting there's so many links to the titanic in this i know i think because that was such a big tragedy that people still look for a reason people are still looking now to try and figure out why it sank mm. and maybe looking for a curse was better than accepting that something was wrong with a boat kind of an act of god was easier to stomach than someone messed up it's a bit like with 9-11 i guess people are so or some people are so intent on it being some conspiracy theory you know the government did it themselves or it was this or it was it was that that sometimes when a tragedy of that magnitude hits you want there to be a cause i know terrorism was the cause of 9-11 but you want something to make sense or to be angry at yeah almost yeah you'd almost you don't want it to be what it actually is because that's so much worse yeah but i do think it's interested interesting with like cursed objects and things it's, i mean do you have anything like we talked about this a little bit with our superstitions mm -hmm. uh tangent podcast a few weeks ago about like having lucky charms and things like you have your nan's rings that you you wear yeah so I, for some reason, my brain will accept that objects can be lucky more than it will accept that they're cursed. But to believe in one, you have to almost believe in the other. Yeah. I believe in bad luck. I believe that things can give you bad luck. But then again, I guess I, that things can give you good luck. So that's, I think, where my brain reasons it out. I do like the, the uh, idea when you were talking about the Egyptian tombs. It was like, if you do harm, harm will come to you. Yeah. Like, that makes kind of sense. Yeah, like a, I want to say like a karmic judgment, but I don't think that's quite what it is. No, I think it probably is, though. If you do something with ill intent, ill intent will come back to you. Yeah. It's like if you do a good deed, you pay it forward, don't you? It's, yeah. It's interesting. Because um, Shakespeare's got a warning on his tomb, hasn't he? Should he ever be dug up, there's a curse attached to that. Oh, I did not know that. So um, Shakespeare's tomb, it says, good friend, of, good friend for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here, 
Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that removes my bones. Very, very Shakespeare. Very I guess nice. none of us want our last resting place disturbed. No. And archaeologist is just a fancy word for grave robber. It is. The interesting <laughs> question is, at what point does it start being archaeology and not grave robbing? Yeah. Is there a limit? I don't know. I suppose there is, but I don't know. So if anybody listening knows, we'd really be interested. Where's that cut-off point? Is there a cut-off point? Is there? I mean, I guess not fresh. Because that's just body snatching. That's a bit Birkin hair. So we need to know the difference between body <laughs> snatching, grave robbing, and archaeology, please. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I could not be an archaeologist. Bones give me the heebie-jeebies. I could not deal with it. I've been on a site where we found bones. It was really strange. Yep. I have this weird fear that the bones of... The, the person the bones belong to is going to follow me home. I feel like it was probably from a Goosebumps book or something like that as a child. Yeah, it sounds like a Goosebumps thing. Yeah, and now I just... I could not deal with it. Even bones in museums skeeve me out. I'm kind of okay with that. My nope. brain, my brain, kind of thinks that as long as you treat them with respect, they're not going to have a problem. No. Nope. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a problem for somebody who really likes church history because there tends to be a few bones in churches. That's true, and relics also has lots of bones. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Saga the She After Dark. Next week it's Gemma's turn and she'll be looking into religious relics. Give us a bit of a taste of some of the things that you'll be liking at. So next week we've got grisly deaths, Greek heroes, a spear that allows you to uh, have world domination, um, impenetrable armour, indestructible earrings and a jewel that grants every wish you have. Mm. Into the indestructible earrings. Yeah, same. Only because my brain instantly went Wonder Woman's bracelets. <laughs> my brain went, I tend to break my earrings, so that would be useful. So do make sure you tune in for that next week. And remember, you can get in touch with us through social media and via our website. And we're going to leave all the links in the description box below. If you like our content and you want to get access to bonus material, early access and voting rights, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Um, and again, the links will be in the description box below. So until next time, take care.